Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is Editor-in-Chief of Time Out London. After graduating from SOAS University with a degree in religion and the history of art, he moved to China for a few years, then struck out as a freelance writer, contributing to, among other publications, The Times, The Observer, Heat Magazine and The New Statesman. In 2012, he assumed the role of features editor at the men's magazine FHM, of which he later became deputy editor. And from there, he edited the pioneering newsletter Mr Hyde and then became editor of the gravely missed Shortlist magazine. In 2019, he took the top job at Time Out. Throughout his career, my guest has often run video game themed special editions, building on his personal passion for the medium. Welcome, Joseph Makatish. Thank you very much, Simon. Very nice to be here. <laughs> it's good to have you. Uh, I've just been admiring your backdrop. You're in uh, you're in Covent Garden. Uh, you told me. Yeah, yeah. Looks- we're we're back in the centre of town after ages of exile. I absolutely love it in in, in the centre of of London as well. Like when I started my career, I was lucky enough to work just on on, on Shaftesbury Avenue, and there's obviously yeah. so much to do. And now to be able to come back at this point, yeah, feels like a bit of a yeah, bit it's of amazing. A 
Now, I'm sure your like day to day is pretty varied, but uh, can you give us like what is a what's a typical day like for the editor of Time Out London? Oh, I mean, for Time Out, it really depends on sort of the particular bit of the year you're in. Like we're recording this just before the coronation, so everything we're doing is sort of coronation related, and that that sort of varies from things that are very meat and potatoes, uh, but kind of necessary, such as events that are going on across London. There's you know food that's sort of king related food that's happening. But also slightly kind of sideways things as well, which are always fun. We, we invited in sort of four alternative kings, a drag king, a pearly king, the lead from the Lion King. Nice. Uh, and an Elvis impersonator. And we did a series of portraits of them with, with, with them reflecting on what the, the coronation means for them. And there's also sort of, you know, essays about, you know, whether people in London really care about it and things like that. So uh, while, while the coronation's happening, my life is very, very sort of coronation shaped. And then the rest of the time, it's sort of just adapts to, you know, whatever else is occurring in London. And I, in the sort of earlier years of my career, I would sometimes go on, um, you know, press junkets, I suppose, maybe to E3 or whatever. And there would, there would often be, you know, if there would often be like a representative from FHM or Stuff or one of those other mags. And, um, you know, you'd hear their stories, which... <laughs> It seemed like quite a good life to have to be working on one of those those mags. All sorts of um, fun trips and exciting things. It, you know, was that your experience? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, unfortunately, Simon, <laughs> I I came in really at the arse end of, of, of everything, and I've I've been fortunate enough to sort of work with really really great people. But a, a friend of mine uh, likened it to being the sort of last person to arrive at a house party at four a.m. and everyone's drunk, <laughs> everything, and everyone. Everyone's unconscious, and you're just politely going around asking if you can finish the ends of people's drinks because they've had all the fun, and they basically want you to mop up the sick that they've created um, over the course of their lives. Uh, having said that, I have had a great time doing it, but it became a lot harder. I think when you look back at the sort of early magazines that were lifestyle magazines, yeah. they kind of had it easy because there was no competition for time and attention. People had nothing to do apart from spend four quid on a magazine and when you look at what they produced, they didn't have to work that hard. I think the moment that Facebook and YouTube essentially started well, monopolizing people's attention for free, it was on us to sort of sort of kick things up a notch. And I and I do think that video games have had a large part to play in the, the way I've always approached magazines. And it wasn't so much, oh, let's do an article about video games. Right. Uh, it was much more to do with incorporating it into uh, larger themes because you know our generation are people that think of video game characters and video game narratives in the same way as you would a famous book or or, or a film you know so if, if we were doing a shortlist let's say and we did do a massive feature about about uh, the concept of a nemesis you know why right. people deserve a nemesis in life you would find a way when you've broken it down to incorporate you know three classic video game nemesis right or, or a good one i remember as well was doing interviewing a a, a judge from craft for a, a spread feature called Who's a Fictional Good Boy Then? And it was just, it, it was assessing, it was, it was a professional man assessing fictional dogs. And of course, one of those dogs uh, was from uh, Duck Hunt. It was, it was quote unquote dog from, from Duck Hunt. Uh, and there, was, there, there, there really are so many examples like that. We had, we, we had someone uh, rebranding evil corporations with like better logos and stuff. And one of them was Umbrella from, from Resident Evil. He did a great job with that. So all of my favorite you know, feature ideas, these very large sort of multi-tentacle things and video games always, always played a part in them. And I, and I feel like that's a much more honest way to approach the medium for fans mm. than going, here are the top five games that are out, you know, this month. So no, no one needs that. You know, everyone has right. search facilities. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it hasn't stopped many websites from doing that kind of piece. But uh, but yeah, I mean, you just describing those pieces it immediately makes me want to go and read them and look at what you did and look at what the logo was like for Umbrella and all that stuff. So exciting. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, there was, I mean, one of your previous guests as well from churches, we had him in the mag. I remember that was that was shortlist as well, but he, he was uh, ranking his most compelling video game monsters, I remember, but in terms of how much, how affecting he found them and that Remember that involved Pyramid Head, certainly was in there. Yeah. Uh, maybe Blanca and the Caco Demon from Doom. And you create these like wonderful um, uh, illustrations featuring them all together. And, and, and in fact, Simon, I'm probably the only person to go on this uh, great podcast who's sort of, who can claim to have employed you as well. Oh, yeah, that's uh, true. Over time. <laughs> as a freelancer, as a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. Because we, <laughs> we've written about video games so much and. You know, I don't know if you know your listeners know for this, but you are held in an incredibly high regard in in the world of writing. You know, your your body of work really speaks for itself. The places that you write for, you know, aren't necessarily normally places that touch on video games, and and oh, you thank always you. find a way to make them really interesting. Very very novel approach. Very very um, uh, you know serious, but also entertaining. Uh, and I've been lucky enough in my career to be able to commission you, you know, from time to time, and it's always been uh, an absolute pleasure. Oh. What a nice thing to say. I wasn't expecting that. Thank you so much. Um, where do you think, like, those those ideas that you were discussing there, I mean, they're so creative and you, we don't, I think they do come from that magazine tradition where you're trying to, where you're trying to think of what's an interesting way into this subject that's going to grab people aside from just like the, you know, oh, there's a new film coming out. Let's speak to the director or something. You know, it's trying to find perhaps where you don't have access or something. It forces you to take a more creative approach is... Is that true? Like, how how do you go about coming up with some of those angles? Well, uh, I'll part the kimono for you now. Um, <laughs> a little bit of insight. It always so basically, it always starts with like, what's a big, interesting idea? Uh, and actually, we we did do a few issues that were purely video game uh, related. So, but it was never just video games. One one of them was do or can video games make you happy? So you'd start there in a brainstorm meeting with all these people who are very creative, very interesting people. I've, been so lucky to work with a couple of genuine geniuses, but also loads of just really colourful individuals that had a lot to say. And, you, and, and you'd be in a, a brainstorm meeting and you would just go through sort of like general big ideas, you know, so it could be um, the idea of like, you know, beauty in, you know, what, what, what is a beautiful video game? What does that mean? Uh, hey, what about video game, you know, weapons and things like that? Like, yeah, you know, things along those lines. And then the next stage after that is to work out how these things physically fill a space and that's where i think experience comes into it because then you're thinking about is this illustration is it photography is it written through is it captions you, you know you're working with a designer to create something that's visually very very pleasant i think that that video games and you know can they make us happy things a great example because uh well firstly that one had you in it and you'd written a great piece about it was essentially advertising in video games uh, it was a single page but that's an example of like a, a very smart written through essay doesn't need huge amounts of visuals and then on the page after that we'd had this illustrated page which was like a weapons rack of the most satisfying game weapons that have ever existed so you had everything from uh clouds buster sword uh next to the blue shell from mario kart I, what else was it, it was, it was <laughs> you know, Sy- Bel- belmont's whip and things like that but they're all drawn yeah. in the same style all together and that's just a very you know um satisfying thing to look at and, that, and there was, uh, you know, writers and novelists talking about the games that they played to get their ideas going. It is, it is. Um, so I suppose you'd always carve up big idea cake into different sized slices that 
fit into different bits of, of a magazine, you know, like, does it need to be visual? Does it need to be clever? Does it need to be funny? And you just you sort of tick all these boxes until you have something cohesive uh, and consistent and satisfying, which is very hard to do on the internet because you cannot force someone to consume something in a specific order. More's the pity. Yeah. Cool. What a wonderful sort of advert there for the craft of magazines you've just given us. Wonderful. All right, Joe. So the premise of the podcast is uh, I've asked you to choose the five video games you want to put on your perfect fictional console. Uh, can you tell us about your first choice, which comes from 1989? Uh, what is the game and, and why do you love it? Uh, I think love's a bit of um, it's a, it's a misleading term, but it's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game that came out on the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES, as, as people in my generation called it. I think the reason I chose this isn't because it's objectively good in any way. It's in fact kind of quite horrible to look at and difficult is not even the word. It's it's of that era, I suppose, where the games were quite short and the, the only way to provide value for money was to make them impossibly hard. Like so, so hard that just thinking back on it fills me with a sense of sort of like dread and sort of nausea. I'm pretty sure YouTube is full of sort of man boys screaming about this and how difficult it is, but there was a particular level under a dam and it's it's sadistic. It's just absolute sadism. But I, but I suppose that the, the reason I chose it is because it's the first really strong memory I have of finding myself going back again and again and again to something really, really challenging and not really understanding why. Because even though like every, every kid in that era, I mean, I don't know how you... I don't know how old you are, but certainly for me, like liking turtles was a prerequisite for just being a human being. Right, right. Um, and it, there was that sort of that sort of military industrial sort of complex thing of cartoon toy like toy line video game, uh, and they all had all these things, and that was the king of them. And you know, um, tons of ripoffs afterwards, like Bucky O'Hare and and um, Biker Mice from Mars, uh, Battletoads, things like that. Turtles was the first one, and I loved it. But for some reason, this game didn't really have much Turtles in it. I can only assume it was, like, I'm fairly sure it didn't have the Turtles music anywhere in it. It obviously had the four main characters, but then the monsters all looked like something out of Hellraiser. I don't know where they were from. Just off-the-shelf monsters or something. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's got to have been some, you know, some company that just sort of, like, had these things ready to go. There were no of the other famous characters in it. And, And so there was nothing really pulling me in, apart from the fact it was really hard and... I, I sort of grew to, like, I guess that was like an early addiction, like wanting to complete this game. But, I mean, it must have been just the first two or three levels over and <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Locked into some sort of, like, Buddhist cycle of sort of death and rebirth over and over again. <laughs> um, did you... Uh, so so it's a scrolling beat-em-up, isn't it? Sort of in the style of Double Dragon and all that. Did you... Could you play as each of the turtles in the NES one? I know you could in the later one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely could. But they, as was the way... Uh, no one had put that much effort into sort of like balancing it, I think, or programming it. So, so two of the turtles were fundamentally useless because their weapons were tiny, and 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 then two of them were sort of okay. Uh, it wasn't as I, I can't I can't sort of um, overemphasize how not fun the the game was, and 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 like how sort of unpleasant it was, and it sort of burnt itself into my subconscious in a way that I suspect means it turns up in loads of like dreams I have now. 
you know, when something was kind of quite sort of madly sort of traumatic and repetitive, I'm fairly sure it's sort of that the, the, the reservoir level pops up as a sort of stress dream I have over and over again. And, and, and there were far, far better games for, you know, there's like sort of ones that I was thinking about picking for this. Like I, I used to love a game called Faxanadu for the NES, which was, yeah. it had a very sort of grim atmosphere and it was, you know, a, a very early sort of RPG, very medieval, so could have gone for that. There was another one called uh, Snake Rattle and Roll, which was incredibly colorful and, and, and really well made, like loads of those early NES games was. But I sort of couldn't overlook Turtles for, for what it represented in terms of pop culture. I, I also think without wanting to, to sort of claim anything too sort of um, significant, uh, the the look of that early '90s stuff, whether it's a uh, you know toy packaging, front cover of a comic, it definitely had a huge impact on the way that I've approached sort of graphic design and magazine covers throughout my whole career. You know, the stuff that made those things so appealing to us as as, as young kids was this mad over the top aesthetic. Yeah. So more is more. You know, massive. You know, sort of a block shadow on letters. Uh, the packaging just has to like stand out from Woolworths or whatever. Um, and when I, when I looked back on sort of magazines and stuff from from before our generation, everything is much more sophisticated and calmer. I, I feel like it, it required influence from Japan to show that like, no, you can go all out with graphic design, have a huge amount of fun, and for it, it will still look grown up if you do it right, you know, like if it's not a mess. It is. Uh, and I think those things like Thundercats and Turtles, when I was a kid, the first instances of a really over-the-top, sort of massive, colourful aesthetic Good. sort of had an impact yeah, yeah, yeah. on me. Yeah, amazing. So the, the NES, was that your, your first console in your household? Yeah, we, we were like a Nintendo Nintendo household up until uh, the Dreamcast, which I'll get on to. Right. I don't know why. I, f- I feel like as a kid, you you are forced to have sort of irrationally strong um so attachment to like one or the other company yeah um you look back on it now and no idea why for some reason we were nintendo i could have easily been you know sega yeah if you'd asked me then i would have spat i would I, I would not have spent my time with any sega people let me tell you um i was nintendo through and through yeah um which was newly but yeah lo- loved loved the nes a great looking object as well this sort of quite kind of hostile gray box yeah they only started making consoles look friendly and rounded i think from the generation after this but then there's it, it's it looks almost quite like an, an alien sort of object it's almost soviet isn't it like the gray box very utilitarian yes yeah i, I think we should bring that back to sort of gaming consoles now because everything's either an enormous sort of monolith statement piece thing uh or it's a sort of incredibly friendly rounded thing yeah um i'd like to see the reintroduction of objectively ugly gray boxes <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell me, where, whereabouts did you, you grow up then? Oh, a part of London that isn't really famous for anything, uh, uh, Paddington. Oh, right. Okay. Quite central then. Yeah, yeah. It's quite central and stuff. It's changed a lot now. It was close, of course, to the Queensway Ice Bowl. So you could walk there in about 20, 25 minutes. There was a massive shopping centre called yep. Whiteley's, yep. which had a, you know Tower Records and things like that. But also a bit further down, Queensway, there was the Ice Bowl, yeah, which had arcade in it, like tons and tons of arcades. So that might have been... My earliest memory of of, of an arcade. Because when I was young, arcades were still quite vital. You know, people went yeah, yeah. to video game arcades. It was exciting. Yeah. I think it was between that uh, and uh, whatever the one in the Trocadero was called at that time. I do, by the way, if you're interested in the Trocadero, which obviously you are, because everyone yes. is, 
um, there was a great feature written for Time Out last year, just about the history. Oh, of it. lovely! And it incorporates absolutely everything from say this the weird Sega World thing, the, the weirdness of that, and you know, do you remember Alien Wars that was downstairs? Yeah, uh, that incredible. It was a sort of proto immersive theatre experience that was there. Yeah, I've always loved uh, the Trocadero, but I can't remember if the Queensway Ice Bowl or the Trocadero was my first first experience. I do remember them both being quite sort of uh, formative for me yeah me too yeah we maybe we were there at the same time as kids because i used to come up with my friends to trocadero and what have you and uh was the ice rink at uh queen queen sway that you're, dis- you're discussing yeah 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 that, that was that one the connoisseur's choice eventually uh was a place obviously that i i used to play truant from school quite regularly and uh go to the namco yes arcade in piccadilly not the one that was oh not the one on the river no okay there was one in in, in piccadilly the, the only evidence for its, for its existence, uh, as far as I can tell, is a clip on YouTube of a, a sort of a BBC crime series. And one scene is shot in that arcade because the killer is like some kind of sort of strange incel arcade lunatic. Uh, and and, and, and the, the police follow him down and he's, he's playing, I'm assuming, Time Crisis or something like that. So they, can, they can get the close-up shot of the, the guy's glasses with the reflection of the gunfire in them to show he's a psycho. Yeah, I think that that that's on there uh, on YouTube. But I love that place. That was there was absolutely no no compromises to creating some sort of uh, family friendly ice rink sideshow. It was an arcade for men, as far as I could tell. It was quite dark and it smelled bad, right? Um, but it had a lot of kind of um, fighting games, like, yeah, you yeah, know, Japanese like two dimensional fighting games, uh, which I'm actually very weirdly interested in. Which I think we could get get onto that later, but. The, the rate at which they have to churn out characters yeah. that stick, you know, uh, that to me has always been fascinating. Just sketching and sketching and sketching. Like, what about this person that's got a bow tie and dancing shoes? No, okay. What about this person? And they, they wear a top hat and they're topless. No, okay. You know, yeah. keep going, keep going until something sticks. You go like, a sumo wrestler with face paint on? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, that one works. That one, eat Honda, let's go. <laughs> it seems so arbitrary what, what works and what doesn't. And I've always been vaguely jealous of the people, you know, for whom their job is just churning out sort of prototypes for characters like beat yeah. up characters specifically yeah 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 very interesting man you're talking about the namco station or, or the i never went to the one you were describing but i went to the one on the on the river thames quite a few times before it closed down and i remember playing air hockey there and the puck flying off and it was all like mirrored glass everywhere and it it's smashing one of the mirrors so yeah that's your shame yeah no, I, is, I, gosh. I feel like you would find it in particular quite a hard thing to live with <laughs> yes um yes. smashed mirrors when was that have you have your has your alarm? oh a long time ago yeah hasn't come up in therapy but no <laughs> but you're, but you're, you're a lost in period of bad luck because, oh i see yeah. yeah i mean i don't know if you smash multiple mirrors in which case you're probably serving consecutive bad luck <laughs> life sentences <laughs> oh dear right well good time then to come to your second game i think which which is a, a fighting game so yeah tell us about this one uh next up is mortal kombat 2 which i think was 1992 or 1993 This was seismic, I feel, for, for people of my generation. Um, it, you know, I think people always point to the, the, the launch of the PlayStation, uh, which was sort of 1996 or 7, as, as when sort of gaming suddenly seemed like it was aimed at people who were a bit older. 
There was that you know, the incredible ad with the girl with a bulbous head, and she's talking about sort of, uh, you know, like, why would I want to land on the moon? I've never been to Grimsby, which is something that you can... Re- I rewatched it just the other day, actually, <laughs> in preparation for this. And it's an incredible bit of advertising, because it really does have a message. People watched it at the time and just went, oh, that's very peculiar and outlandish. But actually, it does relate to video games, does relate to consoles, yeah. and it does it without ever showing a video game or a console. Yes. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I, I feel like it was um, Cunningham, wasn't it, who did the Apex Twin videos? Yeah, that's certainly the style of it, yeah, even if he wasn't the director, but yeah. In any case, people, or, or, or sheeple, if you like, point towards that. <laughs> Point towards that and also Wipeout as the moment that suddenly video games became cool. You know, Wipeout, yeah. dance music in it and things like that. But actually, to me, Mortal Kombat 2, which I, in my mind, I've, I've sort of dovetailed with the release of uh, Reservoir Dogs. Right. Which is like the beginning of sort of sort of blockbuster, meta, postmodern cinema. Those two things together, to me, seemed almost, they went hand in hand in, in, in people's lives. Things moving forwards, like American filmmaking moving forwards. Video games suddenly being darker and, and, and more bloody. Mortal Kombat, of course, very funny for all the... Very sort of famous. Mm. Uh, Mortal Kombat famous for all the gore. In retrospect, it's well, it's ridiculous. It's all massive globs of ketchup yes. flying all over the place. I, I feel like the first one, which didn't obviously make as big an impact as the second one, is grimmer. I think the sort of the slightly VHS quality of the sort of mocap makes it feel a bit like some sort of you know, sort of forbidden video. Yeah, like a video nasty. Yeah, it does have the yeah the vibe of a video nasty. And also, I think the um the fatalities in that one were also just because of the limits of technology. They were sort of grimmer. So later on, it was like, oh, what if Liu Kang turns into a dragon and bites your man in half? Yeah. Whereas in the first one, it was like they'll just rip his heart out. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Like then the guy falls to the ground and Kano's knows holding a heart. Uh, the best one, of course, as everyone would remember, was Sub Zero uh, ripping the head off. With the spine, that's important. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but, but the second one came about, and I feel like it had much better frame rate. Uh, the sprites were way bigger. The colors were darker. And it was just mind-blowing. Something about it seemed so immersive and substantial, even though it was bollocks. You know, it was dreamt up by a load of guys that loved old Kung Fu films <laughs> and, and martial arts and things. They, they probably had a great time doing it. I think I remember reading at the time, the whole thing from conception to being finished was made in like 10 months something yeah. insane like that like really gosh take them long. Huh. I, that, I think that was the second one might be the first one but game magazines went mad for it i remember competitions where people would you know design a, a new mortal kombat character and then you'd win a mortal kombat 2 arcade machine if if you had the best one um, and then I, I remember one this is quite a weird detail to remember but i remember it was such hot such a hot commodity there was a magazine that put a trailer or a teaser, a preview about Mortal Kombat 2 or 3 on the cover, but they didn't have any imagery that related to it. Uh, uh, but that didn't stop them from doing a Mortal Kombat 3 cover that I think was just like a sort of stick drawing of someone's head falling off or something like that. And it, I mean, just, they must have just thought, put this thing on the cover. It's a license to print money. Right, right. Uh, and, and I believe it was. It was uh, probably responsible for people flying back to arcades as well. Yeah. The people just desperate to show off that they knew the fatalities and the babalities and the friendships and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I Actually, I do have a, a one very early memory of seeing Mortal Kombat 2. It's quite bizarre because uh, my younger brother, uh, who I love dearly, he was at school 
very, very, very young with Louis Amos, who is the son of, of Martin Amos, the, 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 the very famous novelist, himself the son of, of Kingsley Amos. And I must have been nine, I think, nine, no older than that. And for some reason, Martin Amos had come to pick up my brother and Louis uh, for a day out. And I just went with them. And because I was a little bit older, I was like two years older than them. Right. Uh, I, w- I was sat in the front of the car, unaware of who Martin Amos was, but also aware that sort of my parents were quite impressed by him. So he must be important and clever. And I remember just trying to make some adult conversation um, with, with this like impossibly famous writer. And he took us to the Queensway Icebox. No way. He was interested in Mortal Kombat 2. Mortal Kombat 2 had interested Martin Amos right. in some way. Well, he's, he loves Arcade, doesn't he? He did a book on Arcade in the 80s. Yes, Simon, he did. And he <laughs> tried very hard to get that out of circulation. And he's failed to do so. If you, if you have um, any way of tracking this book down, I think it was republished recently. Do get it because it's a proper, it's also curates egg. That's the right phrase. I'm not sure. I should know. I'm an editor. It's a, it's, it's, it's a bizarre book. Yeah, he does like tips and cheats, doesn't he, on how to, how to beat Donkey Kong or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but that's interspersed with sort of like sprawling 8,000-word essays on like what yes. Caravaggio could have learned from, you know, Space Invaders. And I don't remember. Yeah. A really, really bizarre mishmash. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it was an easy birth. Right, right, right. Wait, but wait, did did you play Mortal Kombat with Martin Amis then? No. Um, there but for the grace of God. I mean, really, really close. We stood next to each other. Well, you know, Louis and my brother went off to uh, involve themselves with childish things. And Martin and myself, meanwhile, just stood there considering the Mortal Kombat 2 machine for a while, you know, sort of working out what it meant for society, um, that sort of a thing. And I remember, yeah, just sort of watching people go up and sort of play it and him, him, him being sort of interested in this, in, in the hold that it appeared to have on, on young people. Right. Uh, and it definitely did. It really, really did. I mean, I, m- I remember there were like people who used to hang around arcades waiting to essentially jump in for you and be like oh do you want me to do this character's fatality for you because uh, they were just addicted to doing fatalities which sounds sort of mad but they were there i remember the no fatality way. junkies what an incredible story maybe it, that must have been the time he was writing london fields around then so which is well, i'd like to just, think that i had an influence yes i had an influence on him that the, the time that he spent with me in the arcade um yeah watching people you know fail to do sub-zero's spine rip fatality I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. Finish him. 
So tell me, you moved to you moved to China, and then uh, what was that? Why did you go there? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> In retrospect, I'm not sure. I feel like I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a living. Yeah. Um, and and you know, I only really fell into this accidentally because uh, I studied uh, the study of religion and history of art. And the history of art that I found most interesting was was always Chinese art, uh, modern Chinese art, and also sort of stuff from the Cultural Revolution and from this period. And so I, I just sort of moved there. I was there for quite a while. I lived in um, uh, Shanghai for ages, and then also a a city which is small by their standards called Yangzhou. It's still it's got you know four million people uh, living in it, so it's not small by our standards. Right. Um, and I got a job in a university. I, you know, I stayed with a family, uh, learned the language, and had an absolutely brilliant time. And I feel like having you know having had the experience of of just sort of striking out and going and living somewhere. You, it, it does take the sting out of life a little bit because you always think, well, if everything does go, you know, completely wrong, go pear shape, there's always China. <laughs> I can always run away uh, to the other side of the world to some flat because I've done it before and it worked out really, really well. I mean, were, were you teaching English? Yeah, it was conversational English, and it was right. in uh, a series of places, but like the class sizes differed. It was just me, and they differed from sort of some classes that would be sort of 15 students to another class that was about 100 students. And the, um, yeah, the, the, the disparity uh, in terms of, you know, who was good and who was bad was, was absolutely enormous. Right. They were all doing different things at this college. Like some of them were studying to be pharmacologists and some of them were studying to be gardeners. Right. The gardeners didn't really care about learning English. I, I, can, I don't think it would have really come in that much use. Sure. But I made some good friends. Uh, and also for them, you know, Premier League football, and uh, video games were huge, but I suppose not really video games because no one had a console. Mm-hmm. What they did have was like local access now, uh, lo- lo- local area networks, lands. Yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever you just said, that one. They would, and they would go to these very smoky cafes and 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 spend ages and ages playing games that looked to me it looked very very sort of prehistoric and and, and not fun at all. Right. But for them, they, 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 they would put like fifteen hours into these things at a time, and the government at the time was also pretty heavily involved in in sort of creating propaganda to suggest these games were bad for the fabric of society right and bad for the human condition so you'd read these stories in the local newspapers and you'd see things on the news about how someone had like lost a sword in a uh, a massive online role-playing game and then sort of quietly put their mouse down and traveled all the way across china to track down and kill in real life the person who had lost, who had stolen their sword, right, right. which is probably nonsense. There was, there was another one about two kids that stayed up all night playing EverQuest or, or Ultimate Online or, or one of the, the great many Chinese knockoffs. And they were so tired on their way home that they lay down on a railway, a, a railway uh, and were killed by an oncoming train. A, a, again, like there was something so about the way it was reported that really seemed fictional right. about 15 years ago. Uh, but they they all loved these places, and they did have a real atmosphere to them because of all the smoking, yeah. uh, smoking uh, and drinking. Uh, these huge sort of like subterranean rooms that, that reminded me of the first internet cafes and sort of game bars that existed in London long time ago. They were sort of outlaw places. They felt a bit like they operated on the edges of legality, and they weren't pleasant. They weren't sort of like made attractive for outsiders at all. I always found that very, very enigmatic and interesting. There's one, I, I think it's still there. The only one that I really feel has that vibe still is on the Caledonian Road. 
And I've only been there once, but I used to live right next to it. And it's called Meltdown. Right. And unlike a lot of these new places that have opened up that are very shiny and very photogenic and heavily branded, Meltdown was, you know, for the lizard brain. It was it was for it was for the goblin mode within us. Uh, and it really catered to that. But I really like that honesty. And I like that that, you know, people who want that have somewhere to go, which is sociable and they can sort of like have a good time and be around people that like it. And it, it's you haven't got the sort of the hand of branding coming right. to to make it sort of palatable. Yeah, yeah. It's not always necessary. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Joe, we may come to your third game, but you know, this is kind of relevant because uh, it's a game in which you can visit sort of cafes and things like that in it. And I guess has that sense of being in a foreign country. So tell us about this one from uh, the year 2000. The next game on my list is inevitably uh, Shenmue. I never replayed Shenmue, so all of my memories are probably, you know, rose-tinted to the degree that I couldn't be considered an objective source. But I think what's fascinating about it is it's almost like the purest example of a of an enormous company doing something so incredibly stupid, but for the right reason. You know, this was this was the last roll of the dice for the Dreamcast console, which was in itself the last roll of the dice for Sega as a hardware manufacturer, as far as I know. And the idea, they were like, look, what's going to save this company? What, what's a real surefire game that, you know, is, um, it can't fail because it's just, you know, it's going to be easy to make, but, you know, it's like a low-risk thing. And, and someone, presumably Yu Suzuki, said, well, how about the most expensive game that's ever made, which basically <laughs> involves you wandering quietly around a Japanese suburban town tracking down the sailors <laughs> and, and playing even older retro arcade games like this this is this is going to be the one it's, it's it's just so charming it's just so charming and, and, and people think of it as an open world game but it, it but it wasn't at all it was a sort of boring life simulator with a vague murder mystery going on sort of in the background yeah, yeah. but then even then it, you know compared to games nowadays there was no obvious handholding. yeah you know it didn't say you have, it, you'd, you'd speak to someone in the street and they'd say Oh, if you want to find out about the sailors, you have to go and speak to May. But there would be no arrow that told you where May was, or who May was, or what time of the day May would come out of their house. Because I think the most wonderful thing about Shenmue, and the thing that influenced me, was that they'd created little lives for these... It was, it was like 250 unique little people who lived in that town. And I'm sure a lot of those unique lives consisted of leaving the house at 7am, fishing until 8pm and then going back home. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them, they would go to the shop, they would go to work, they would go to the high streets, and it was magical. Like, the idea that this this, this place would be doing all this stuff, whether or not you were there. And the fact, I think that the, the weather system was based on an actual town's weather system from yes. the 8th. Yes, which, that's which, right. Which is a beautiful concept. It, re- it really, really is. It, it's, it's quite moving. Yeah. And then they just put in all these sort of bizarre mini-games, like the, the Docks one. My, my friend, actually his version of Shenmue was broken and he didn't realize it. But once the docks 
game started. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there was a mini game where you drove a forklift all day. And I feel like that was, maybe that was like a very clever meta comment because you'd have the clock in the corner that would show you when you can stop being on the forklift. And you would just sit there lifting and dropping boxes, looking at the clock, waiting for it to get to 5 p.m. Yeah. And then you realized that you were doing this in your spare time, essentially. You, that was a sort of cruel trick being played on us by Mr. Suzuki. Um, my friend's copy of Shenmue stopped at that point. It, it, it didn't let you ever get past the forklift. So <laughs> he was doing that for weeks and weeks. Like, I think he entered into a sort of strange fugue state eventually. Like I said, it was a waking dream state where he just accepted it as his future. Yeah. But I, but I absolutely loved it. And also, the other thing about Shenmue was that there, uh, unless my memory is playing tricks on me, there's very little fighting in it. No, I feel yeah. like all of the all of the advertising back in the day made it look like an action game, like a sort of you know scrolling beat 'em up. But actually, you very very rarely had to fight, and I feel like that sort of made the combat feel more significant in a way. It's like when you're actually called to you know for for your sort of wonderfully thick protagonist when he had to fight, it felt kind of special. He was great. I can't remember his name, but he was, was it R- uh, Rio or Rio. Or Ryu, I can't, can't remember. Yeah. It might have been Ryu. Yeah, I, th- I felt like he was a, a, a Ryu or a Rio. Yeah, but he was just this incredibly credulous kind of like nice guy who walked around in this sort of uh, he was wearing a leather jacket. Yeah, white t shirt. Yeah. yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah. What an iconic look. <laughs> uh, and then of, of course the 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 sad thing was you create this incredible game. Uh, well, I think it was incredible, and it just was not you know, mainstream at all. No. It, it, it was bizarre, actually, in retrospect. And then, uh, I can't remember how long afterwards, but, you know, Grand Theft Auto yeah. uh, would have come out and just people were like, oh, no, that's what a free game feels like. Yeah. You blow things up. I think it was like three years later. But it was, you know, Shamu was so influential, even though, as you say, it wasn't particularly mainstream because it was the first of the 3D world. You could wander around. The shops opened at particular times according to the in-game clock and all that. So it just had all of these... Um, you know, amazing innovations in 3D, at least, that, that then became commonplace in all the games we play today. Yeah, I loved as well just the attention to detail with, you know, you go into the little sort of workman's cafe, you know, by by the sea and, and just looking at, you know, the fact that someone had designed the little soy sauce bowls that were on yeah. the tables and things like that. It was, to me, that was almost touching. Mm-hmm. It, it felt so beautifully realised and poetic. Uh, it just wasn't really a, a video game in retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you you finish your stint in in China and come back to the UK, become a freelancer, and then go on to work as a features editor. I wanted to ask you. I read a little um, interview with you where you you sort of alluded to this anecdote, but didn't really explain it. So you mentioned that one time you drank vodka in the penthouse apartment of a Russian billionaire while he sang to you, backed by a full backing band. How d- how did you get in that situation? Well, I. I don't want to make all this sound too too sort of um, laddie or anything like that. Like the the, the vodka, it, it was it was deeply unpleasant and uncomfortable. Uh, I was not having fun. But that was a feature with a guy. I don't know if I should name him, but he was the son of a one of the OG oligarchs in Russia. Mm. You know, one of the Yeltsin guys uh, who essentially you know raised a small family in a tiny flat, and then by the end of his life, and he's still alive now, owns an empire of you know, a fleet of luxury cars, you know, property. Oh, it's half of London, probably. Yes, yeah, yeah, quite quite possibly. But his son was also a property developer, nice enough guy, but had aspirations of being a pop star. So he'd been entered into Russia's Eurovision thing and was representing the country. And 
we we found out about this guy and it sounded so peculiar. So we went and I just stayed with him for a while in, in Moscow. And he was, a, he was like an affable enough dude. But first thing he showed me was like a video of, of Donald Trump on his phone, wishing him happy birthday, like personally. And then another one from Robert De Niro, which is weird. That is weird. Is weird. You, yeah, that's sort of uh, a black mark next to De Niro's name for me after that. Right. This is before the days of Cameo as well, I guess. He didn't... It was. No, yeah, this, this was literally your man Trump messaging this guy just a little video. Wow. And, you know, he, you know to, to rehearse in his family and his dad had, had essentially built him his own bespoke arena, which is still there, you know, and it, it, it was created to give him a sort of a venue that he could always use. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but I remember going back to his apartment, which was in the middle of Moscow, and you enter the apartment via an elevator that goes from, you know, the the, the lobby. I opened up into his flat and stepped out into his flat. And there was just this backing band in his living room, which the living room itself is the size of a library. And the backing band consisted not, it wasn't a small band. It had The, the backing band had backing singers in it and they were waiting for him in his apartment, just sort of jamming. Um, you know, sort of when, they, when they're sort of like swaying from left to right, just like playing a kind of riff over and over. Again, I don't know how long they'd been there doing that for. When he came in, he sort of saw them and he took his jacket off and he was like, oh, give me a moment with you and just like grabbed the microphone and started singing with them. So I just sort of had nothing to what? do. What? Yes, yeah, so, so sit down with my sort of small glass of um, Russian standard vodka uh, and just sort of nod appreciatively and talk about, I, no, that, one was, that was very emotional, that one, is the word I kept using. <laughs> no, that, was inc- that, that one was really emotional. <laughs> and he put all this on for your benefit, do you think? Yes, I think so. I, I, right. I, I think it was for me. But yeah, it was that was a pretty mad one. There were a lot of features that you would sign up to and you would come up with because there was an opportunity to like travel a little bit. But it was, in retrospect, fun. Had I known I'd be dining out on these stories so much in the future, I'd have done a lot more of them. <laughs> but... Um, if that one sticks in the mind. There's, there's tons. There's tons. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was the thing. When you, when you look back on sort of journalism uh, at its peak in this country, they stopped doing that stuff for so long because it's such a pain in the ass. They would just, you know, they, people would often write features just from their desk. Whereas everything which is entertaining, usually, unless the person's very funny, but that's very rare. Yeah. Funny writers are rare, unless they're very funny. To make someone interested in what you're writing, you have to do something. You have to go. Yeah, you've got to get out of the house. Exactly. Experience something and describe it in a way which is, you know, a little bit salacious and interesting and, and exciting. Like, it doesn't matter what the publication is. It can be the highest brow newspaper. It can be the lowest brow tabloid. You've got to give a little bit of jeopardy, a little bit of danger, all that stuff that keeps people reading. I think it's very important. Yeah, yeah. In fact, going back to Amos, I think he says in the forward of one of his collections of journalism that he did for The Observer in the 90s that, um, you know, the benefit of signing up to do these things is that it gets you out of the house and you've got to get out of the house if you want to get material. So, yeah, very true. Absolutely. The job that I had at the time of that Russian one was, that was FHM. And there were absolutely tons of stories like that. And they're not particularly sort of laddie or, or, or sort of, none of them are shameful. They were just quite fun and interesting uh, and taught me a lot about writing and editing as well uh, but it was a hard hard job and actually the the, the difficulty of that job directly uh, relates to the the next game right okay yeah well okay let's use that as the segue then so tell us about your uh, your fourth game i i feel like this one's uh not very original and i'd be very surprised if if it hasn't popped up but this is mario kart um specifically i would say the Mario Kart 8 slash 8 Deluxe, which is still the most recent one, I think. 
Uh, do you play Mario Kart, Simon? I do, yeah, yeah. Who's your character? Uh, Black Yoshi. Okay, good. Yeah, the same, exactly the same as my friend Chris, I hope he's listening. The impact that Mario Kart had on on me and my my colleagues cannot be understated. We we had this job that was so hard. It was sort of towards the yeah. end of conventional publishing. And we were still putting out this magazine. We were so young. We were like in our sort of mid to early 20s, most of us. Yes. And we were not qualified enough to be doing this. And we would just finish each issue. And everything we did was bespoke. Bespoke photography, bespoke illustration. Bespoke, you know, everything was written uh, really, really sort of uh, with a lot of detail. And we would finish each, each issue and just sort of collapse. And then immediately start on the next one from scratch, which in, in retrospect just seems insane. But throughout all of it, we had Mario Kart. And we, it, it started off because one of the first issues we did, we did a feature where we forced young people to play very old games, see what they made of them. And I remember like, um, well, like, like a lot of them were just, they were, they were very young kids and they were sort of weirded out that when you killed people in GoldenEye, it didn't yield resources like in Minecraft. <laughs> and, and also it just made it clear that very old games just aren't really fun. But we kept the N64 in the office. And that, that one had a, a copy of Mario Kart, which we played together. And we eventually went through every single iteration of the game until we ended up with eight deluxe. And we'd called in, you know, this this sounds, this is not a painting a very sympathetic picture of us. We'd managed to call in for the World Cup, like a 90-inch television, which we fastened to the, to the wall. And we just had Mario Kart on it. And the, the, the job was so much and so stressful that Mario Kart became this blessed relief. For everyone right I, I feel like because i wasn't the editor the editor did let us do it because i think he knew how important it was as, as a sort of like pressure relief uh battle. right 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 we would just stand up and someone would be like four player and you'd four of you would just walk over and everyone had their set their characters and the mad thing is it's like i've forgotten so much the amazing <laughs> work these people have done in their career with me whether it's there or <laughs> mr hyde or shortlist but I know exactly which character each of them plays. And I know exactly how they play. We got we got so good at Mario Kart, Simon, that we actually had to eventually play a version of it that we called Pure, where you would turn <laughs> off you would you would turn off the computer characters and the weapons. Nice. So essentially it became like this very unforgiving sort of Mario Kart F one, where <laughs> if you made if you made a single made a single mistake on a corner. You were out. It was like there was no point continuing because you knew the other three people were not going to make a mistake. Right. So it was just like trying to get the slipstream. It, it, it was in retrospect like a sort of like horrifying sort of dedication to something completely arbitrary and unedifying. But we all do still talk about it to this day. It brought us all really, really close together. Like the experience of just like having that one thing that was it, it, for a while. Like as, as great as the job was. It made us all go mad, and, mm. and this thing in the office was the reason that we didn't quite go mad. I think, right? Car extraordinary. Were you were you working super late hours, and so that was helping with the. Whenever we got to um, press deadlines, it, it, it would always be like super super late hours because uh, teams were suddenly much smaller. Yeah. So you were sort of processing a similar number of pages, but with you know half a number of designers <laughs> or one designer, and like you know no. Now, the, the the jobs that do take a long time are things like sub-editing, yes. which is sadly an endangered species of a position, but it's incredibly necessary to have someone who's making sure that things are spelled correctly, things are, all the grammar's okay, that there's a house style, and you can't rush that. You know, it just takes a while for someone to read everything and make sure it's not like garbage. And if you reduce the number of subs to one or whatever, it's yeah. just going to create a sort of bottleneck. It was like this late night thing, but I think because we were young, 
it was fun as well because no one had any sort of responsibilities. No one had family or anything like that. So it was just an extension of like being in the pub together because you'd have like beers in the office and things like that. And Mar- Mario Kart was just a completely integral part uh, of, of, of what we were doing. And I, I feel like Mario Kart's like popped up a lot in um, tons and tons of features that we've done over the, in, in, in the past. Like it just, it's an inescapable part of my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We happen to be talking at a time when there there are major layoffs happening in the media industry. Of course, that's that's all of the time. <laughs> but um, BuzzFeed News is uh, is on the way out. Of Vice is either bankrupt or close to it, isn't it? Um, but it seems like at the moment it's the web outlets that that are suffering. Um, do you think you know talking there about teams on magazines getting smaller and smaller? Do you think that assault has sort of leveled out now, at least when it comes to the print side, or, or is there worse to come? You never know. You never know. I mean, the thing is, in my career, me and my peers, you know, for a lot of us, all we've ever known is is, is diminishing resource. But I, what I would say is that I think we've turned a corner with all of that. And certainly at, at time out now, our bad period came a little while ago, <laughs> related directly to the pandemic. I can tell you that being the editor of a magazine about going out during a, a global pandemic, no fun whatsoever. Right, but, right. Oh my God, it was terrible. But we we now, you know, we have people joining all the time and it feels very optimistic the the, the problem is with with you, you you know i i really liked waypoint which was the vice video game vertical that was a long time ago noisy the music one thump yep. the um dance music uh, motherboard computers very very good and i have no problem with any of those websites because they were good and they were aimed at a niche number of people and they were written by people that cared about the subject matter yeah. In the same way, Edge Magazine would have been for Waypoint people, you know, Mixmag for Thump, yada, yada, yada. The difference is people paid for Mixmag and people paid for Edge. When it comes to a vertical and a website, it's all well and good having a niche audience unless you've got some sort of mad billionaire who wants a return on investment or a load of shareholders. And they'll look at the number of people who are interested in dance music and just say, why would I care about a number that small? Which is sad. Because niche audiences is what makes things interesting. You know, the people who listen right. to this great podcast, I'm sure, are interested specifically in the subject matter. They want to hear about specific consoles and games and things like that. There are only so many of those people. You know, Kurt Vonnegut said, if you open the window and try and make love to the world, you just catch a cold. And it's true. <laughs> you cannot appeal to that many people at the same time, which is mm. what big media companies still want. So something like Vice, that was only ever going to appeal to a small number of people. And that was just clearly not enough for the shareholders and the stakeholders um it, it could have been different if you know companies in this country had figured out a way to advertise nicely but as you do know like most uk most london websites they just look horrible they're just you know ugly experience destroying adverts plastered all over the place you know to, to paraphrase david simon you know how how little respect do you have to have for your product to not only give it away for free, but to also make it look like shit. No no, no wonder people aren't used to paying for this stuff when we're just, mm. you know, it's been packaged up in a way that is just nickel and diming it, you know, earning half a penny for a page view. Mm. Um, you know, who would have thought if you do a website about dance music specifically, half a penny a page view was not going to cut the mustard. Mm. Uh, so hopefully we're turning a corner now where people will manage to find a way to monetize niche audiences who don't mind spending a couple of quid for something that speaks directly to them you know right right they'll you know join a patreon for a podcast if the people who do the podcast seem to actually give a damn (laughs) about what they love i feel like conventional media 
it'll either have to follow suite or, or just sort of die on its ass. Yes. Very interesting. Right, let's come to your fifth and your final game, Joe. Tell us about this one. Yeah, well, this sort of ties into the pandemic a little bit. I got this job at the start of 2020 and had three great months of, 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 of working out how time out worked and everything. And then, of course, uh, COVID-19 happened. And we have a couple of years that I've you know, tried very hard now to, to suppress. Bad time for a lot of people. I hated it. And for me, this next game was, was so important in getting through it. And, and, and the game was the remastered version of Dark Souls. Dark Souls, like Shenmue, sort of isn't what it was advertised as. And I'd, I'd never played it up until that point, up until mm. 2020. And I, I should say as well, I, I used, like a lot of people, I found it very hard to read during the pandemic. My attention span was very bad and I wanted to read, I couldn't. But for some reason, I, I could play games. And I used the the Nintendo Switch to, to sort of go back and finish all these games from my childhood that I'd never actually got to the end of. <laughs> Um, there, was, there was absolutely tons. I remember, I think Super Castlevania and Super Metroid were the ones that I enjoyed the most. And then, you know, Zelda Link's the Past, Secret of Mana, the first Resident Evil, which which I enjoyed a, a, a huge amount, many more besides. And, and then someone said, oh, you should definitely add Dark Souls to that list because it, it is a classic. And I was like, well, it doesn't look like my sort of thing, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And I, I think the reason that it resonated so much is that, like, it's... It's the only game I can think of that I've played as an adult that elicited actual relief and emotion because the, the game hates you. Like, the, the game wants you almost... It, it, it's a strange sort of yin-yang thing where the game wants you to fail, but because it wants you to fail, it helps you to succeed. <laughs> and and you can talk about... You know, that's the thing. If someone hasn't played Dark Souls, talking about it in these terms is very alienating for them. But I, I believe there is like a lot to be said about the the, the thinking that went into it, uh, the fact that it's it's like relentless failure, and there there is no arbitrary sort of progress system or or, or, or hand holding. The only way you can go from A to B to C to D is pure human determination. Right. Uh, you feel like you've been reduced to something very, almost like elemental. Yes. I think when you're playing it, and you and and, and what's also novel is that you you fear death in a game. Most games, there's not a price to pay for dying, whereas in Dark Souls, there is. And so when you're sort of walking into these incredibly hostile, atmospheric places, and you, you have no idea where you are, the idea that you could be sort of murdered at any moment carries a sort of a, a real weight and a real significance. It's, it's not open world at all. In fact, the world is the most wonderful thing about it because it's sort of linear, pretty much linear, um, and then as you're going through it, you sort of have it revealed to you that the whole thing is just sort of bound together. And you're sort of wondering at one point, oh, my God, am I absolutely tiny? Am I the size of an acorn? Or 
when I'm a giant. Um, it, it, it's the way, the way the world reveals itself to you is it's so beautiful. And I know, I know that you've, you've interviewed the, the creator. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. How, how did you find that? Well, I, I've interviewed him a couple of times. The first time was for Dark Souls, actually, when the, before the game was out. And he didn't want to give much, much away, to be honest. So it, he wanted to... I think he's someone who really prizes that sense of um, discovery and vagueness. And those are all the things he enjoys in the fantasy that he, he reads and watches and all of that. So, yeah, you sort of... I was there writing for for Edge magazine actually, and so you're trying to get concrete details for the game, and it was very difficult. But let, l- more recently, I interviewed him for the New Yorker, and that was more of a profile, and he was much more comfortable talking about his life and inspirations and all of that sort of thing. So that seems like uh, it seems like he's not someone who wants to explain his work anyway. No, and I feel like the New Yorker is a better, more sort of suitable place for him probably than a video game magazine. I I I, I do always remember those stories that Shigeru Miyamoto told about why he wanted to make Zelda was sort of creating almost like a sort of facsimile of the feelings of of childhood exploration. Yeah. Finding a cave and going into somewhere unexplored. And I, I think Dark Souls actually sort of conveys that feeling equally well, if if not better. And the whole thing's obviously sort of tinged with horror. Yeah. Um, but 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 to me, it's, it's that feeling of, of, of uh, sort of being completely out of your element. And my, my friend described it very well where he said all of those games you know Elden Ring included but Dark Souls especially they sort of feel like your character has turned up in this world after something very significant happened and you're not really ever sure what that is but you're sort of late to the party right and I love the way that the story just sort of washes over you and you can be as interested in it as you'd like I mean I, I feel like Bioshock is sort of similar they're beautiful though rich uh, way of telling stories you know the, the voice acting in it is so strange you know everyone just sort of yes. talks and laughs uh really really original and, and memorable yeah it sure is wonderful okay joe let's go through your console so we've got here teenage mutant ninja turtles uh mortal kombat 2 shenmue uh, super mario kart 8 deluxe and dark souls remastered for the switch that sounds uh that sounds wonderful Nice little, uh, nice little selection there. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, I, I mean, in retrospect, the thing that I'm realizing is a lot of these are just sort of miserable experiences that have most of the fun attached to them. <laughs> we do work in magazines. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Addicted to misery and suffering. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the common theme, maybe apart from, um, you know, Mario Kart, is, is just sort of like wandering through a sort of twilight world of sort of like pain uh and and sort of like a lot of difficulty as well and mortal kombat turtles even yeah shenmue is often like overcast and sad dark souls not painting a particularly um sort of optimistic picture of myself here I, i'm a nice person no, it's great. I, I am okay what, what should we call your console then well i was desperately just now trying to rush into english tra- translate gray box <laughs> uh, you're saying there's some sort of return to soviet aesthetics if you could do the honors and and just find out how to say grey box in Russian. Yeah. Um, then we have a sort of nice brutalist utilitarian console. Okay. Uh, that no wife, girlfriend, or husband of a gamer uh, would ever want put up within their homes. All right, cool. I'll add that to the outro when when we get to that bit. Um, all right, just before I let you go, Joe, you spend a lot of time thinking about London, I guess, and experiencing things in it. Uh, if if I got two days in London in 2023. 
Uh, what do I need to go and see? Oh, God, I hate when people put me on the spot like that. Because <laughs> it, it, it really, really does change all the time. What I would say is um, the quite excited for the, the Young V&A opening, which was, yeah. used to be the childhood, the Museum of Childhood and Home. Yes. Beth Lord Reed. That's about to reopen this summer. And I think that'll be uh, really, really great. Also this year is the largest, uh, I think the largest in Europe, uh, Museum of Illustration opening around uh, the canal near King's Cross somewhere, or maybe further up towards Angel. It used to be in Coldrop's yard. Um, uh, but then beyond those things, I was going to also mention the amount of things that are to do with art and theatre, especially across London, that relate directly to video games now uh, is incredible. There was an artist, one particular example, a guy called Lu Yang. Actually, not a guy, it's, it's, it's a they, them. Yep. Uh, Lu Yang, and they created an arcade where... All of the arcade machines were their creation. The cabinets, the games themselves, everything was an artistic statement. Everything was sort of interesting. Um, there's a, another artist called Sal Fei who created a whole city in Second Life, which is sort of uh, a bit of as a pastiche of a Chinese city. Yes. There are people doing photography exhibitions based on the photography in GTA. There was the, uh, an artist called Corey Archangel that exhibited work that was essentially levels of the first Mario game with everything taken out apart from the clouds and it was just called mario clouds they drift by wow it's very nice um th theater as well uh there's a there's a theater company that puts on shakespeare in fallout so you can stumble across them yes i've heard of them yeah. that, that that's like a quite a famous example of it but there's also people who do plays in in grand theft auto you know you sort of watch it in game or you live stream it uh, absolutely tons of it there was a, a play that i saw that had call of duty projected into the wall uh, behind as well quite recently about about men and that was excellent so i think that it's getting harder and harder to separate video games from the sort of more classically <laughs> edifying art forms uh, but, but sorry when i spoke to the theater critic here and the art critic eddie and andre they had tons of examples of how these things have come together <laughs> um especially in art right now it seems to be a big thing people create their own video games to sort of make a to, to, to sort of create a statement on something else yeah yeah there was an exhibition at the turner gallery recently where the artist had a whole room dedicated to the influence of games on his work so i think you're dead right it's uh yeah, good time to be doing that kind of work. Well, Joe, thank you so much for this. It's been great to talk to you and hear your choices in your life and all your experience in magazines. Really incisive and, and interesting. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Ah, wasn't that a lovely time? Thank you so much to my guest, Joe McIntosh. Um, Absolutely loved that. Loved hearing all of Joe's very, very good anecdotes. Um, but of course, also his, his fine choices. I've got to say, putting that edit together and when the Shenmue music kicks in, oh my gosh, felt a bit teary at that. That's uh, what a what a fine game. What a... <laughs> What a fine time of life that was when the Dreamcast was out. Yu Suzuki's making Shenmue. Yes. Uh, uh, yes. I mean, the game, let's be honest, perhaps doesn't hold up that well. And perhaps even at the time was a little a little boring, but it was very novel, that's for certain. Um, yeah, you, we were scratching around for the name of the protagonist. It was, of course, Ryo uh, with an O, Ryo. Uh, Hazuki, Ryo Hazuki, and the town that they're 
they're poking around in or that Rio is uh, living out his his uh, student life and doing all the working in the docks and all that was Yokosuka, uh, the sleeping little Japanese town. Um, yeah, what a vibe that game was. And loved hearing Joseph uh, recall all the, I guess, all the things that made that game so special, um, as well as, of course, his other choices as well. Right, so we, a few points of order I need to go through there. This this episode was recorded, uh, as you heard, right before the, the coronation of the king, which was slightly before... Uh, I regret to say the the very sad and untimely death of Martin Amis, who we talked about, one of one of my favourite writers. No surprise there. <laughs> A sort of male writer of my age really likes Martin Amis. Stop the press. But hey, um, yeah, his writing has meant meant a lot to me, especially his his non fiction stuff, which uh, I've found very influential. Got into it through. My dear friend Christian Donlan, who has been reading Martin his whole life. Um, anyway, yeah, so it was it was sort of lovely to have that anecdote that Joe gave us of uh, watching Mortal Kombat two. I think was it in the arcade um, by Queensway Ice Rink or, or wherever it was, uh, standing there with with the great man himself. Uh, while Martin's eldest son, Lewis, was off playing with Joe's brother, younger brother. Um, yeah, I wasn't expecting that story. And um, I was sort of tempted to put this episode out around that, but thought I'd give it a little bit of space. Um, and anyway, if you're a fan of uh, of Amos, then I'm sure you enjoyed that anecdote as well. Um, right, it was indeed, of course, Chris Cunningham, the director of the Aphex Twin uh, videos who did the PlayStation advert that we're talking about. We have talked about that advert before uh, on a previous episode with Suze Kempner because her current comedy tour is uh, the poster for that place is a sort of riff on that uh, on that advert. So yeah, Chris Cunningham, whose work is stands up, I would say, very well today. Joe is also the host of a brand new podcast that's coming out with Time Out. It's called Love Thy Neighbourhood. And in the series, Joe accompanies famous Londoners as they take him around their favourite bits of London. Uh, It is a lot of fun. There's only one episode and a trailer out, but it is very cool. You can see Bimini Bomb Boulash from RuPaul's Drag Race UK edition. Chloe Petz... uh, is uh, taking Joe around Streatham. Um, Dot Brown, the brilliant uh, poet comedian, um, is uh, drinking Guinness on the Kilburn High Road with Joe. Anyway, get along, get onto Spotify. You can subscribe to that. Um, it's great. It's great fun. So uh, yeah, sub to that right now. Okay, Joe said that he would like to name his console Grey Box in Russian. My Russian is not very good. I can say a handful of words. I've only been to Moscow once. I am writing a book, actually, at the moment, right at the end of it, about to submit my first draft that is set in uh, in Leningrad, or what is now St. Petersburg. So I have been spending a lot of time looking at Russian language stuff. But uh, yeah, rather than murdering that phrase here is how google pronounces gray box in russian so there you go if someone could add that to the my perfect console 
uh, data spreadsheet that would be much appreciated uh, on that on that note yes you can uh, very lovely uh, my perfect console patreon supporters have put together a giant spreadsheet with all of the guests that have been on the on the podcast with the names of their consoles with their five game choices it's even got a tab that shows the current rankings for those games which ones have been chosen the most uh, it will be no surprise to anyone who's listened to all of the episodes so far that the game in the lead is Disco Elysium. Uh, so well on course to be crowned at least the most picked game of 2023. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll pop along. I've advertised the link on the My Perfect Console Twitter account, which is at My Perfect Console with the O's removed. Uh, or you can just go to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash My Perfect Console uh, there is a public post there. Maybe I'll pin it. I'll pin it. And then you can always find it easily. That, um, if you click on that, then you can go and, uh, and browse everyone's choices. Uh, there are links to all of the episodes on that page as well, as well as the uh, broadcast, if that's the r- right word. The date that the podcast came out, the date it landed. So you can, um, yeah, you can you can go and pour over that data. It's, it's good fun. Um, right. Thank you again, Joe. Brilliant. Loved talking to him. And um, thank you for the very kind words that he said about working with me. I, uh, as he said, have done a couple of pieces with Joe, full disclosure, where he was my editor back, I think, when he was working for Shortlist. But uh, but yeah, I I haven't met Joe and um, just really got along well with him and loved all his stories. So yeah, it was great. I'm sure you all enjoyed listening to that too. Right, if you would like to write to me, you can do so at myperfectconsole at gmail.com. If you would like to support the podcast, please go to Patreon, become a Patreon supporter. It really does help uh, just keep everything going and also you get loads of benefits. You get to be part of the My Perfect Console community, uh, try and do posts regularly, you get to see which guests are coming up each month, you get to ask questions to those guests. They're, they're going to start coming out soon, those little bonus Patreon episodes uh, just with um, um, community questions. And uh, later on this year, we're going to be doing the My Perfect Console knockout to find out the best console of the year. Okay, that's uh, that's probably everything from me for now. Thank you again for listening this far into the podcast. It's great to have you. If you're new, then go back, listen. We've got some fantastic episodes in our back catalogue and some good ones coming up as well. Leave us a review or a rating and definitely subscribe. And uh, yeah, I will be back again next week. Have a great week and I'll see you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.